Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist and a sports nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Uh, and I'm here in Spain with uh, Dr. Josh Cotter and about to be Dr. Mike Nelson. And we're just going to talk a little bit about uh, the meeting itself. Uh, the first talk that uh, I remember was actually about inflammation, and the guy was showing all kinds of data um, about it. I mean, I, I believe that he was developing new drugs. Is that right? Yeah, I think that was kind of the end goal of it, is that he, the disclosures he had were for some pretty big drug manufacturers, and they were trying to look at new and sort of novel compounds, so that was the, the impression I got from that, too. Right, yeah. Um, and I think one of the take-homes that I got from that was he really seemed to be focused on not just stopping inflammation, but um, starting the healing process and looking at different mediators, biochemical, you know, compounds that will help healing take place and inflammation's end, uh, like resolvins and whatnot. And he really was a, a positive, I guess, about aspirin. Yeah, they initially said that aspirin was better at the initial onset of an injury. Um, he was not a fan of NSAIDs or that type of thing. Um, the impression I got was that it impairs the healing process, but aspirin may, in essence, kickstart the process initially. So if you have a major injury and you may consider taking a small amount of aspirin maybe for a couple of days, there was no dose or amounts or timing or anything like that yet. Mm-hmm. I, and I think it's something that I think a lot of lifters are familiar with is preventing acute swelling, you know, and inflammation from becoming chronic, right? I mean, and he seemed to be very interested in that. Like, let's get the acute inflammation gone um, so it doesn't become a chronic condition, right? I don't know. What do you think about that, Josh? I didn't see the talk, quite frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to remember that as my cop off. I didn't see that one. <laughs> it was, there was a lot of biochemistry in that talk, but... Yeah. It's a kind of thing where it's, I hate to say it's common sense because I know there's some listeners like, oh, that's just another science bit, you know, tidbit. But it's, it's nice to have some kind of why, you know, you don't want to have things just get a hold of you, I think, and just wreak havoc, you know, end up with tendinosis and God knows what. Yeah. The big thing I got from it is that he looks like he actually may even allow more inflammation at the beginning. And then he drew a little graph showing that inflammation goes down and that the resolution of the healing process actually goes up, so they're sort of, you know, opposite of each other. So initially there's maybe more inflammation. At the end, like you said, it becomes less, and that you don't want it to become this chronic high inflammation um, condition. You want inflammation as part of the healing process, and then the resolution of all of that so that it's actually healed at that point. And it it looked to me like uh, some of those drug companies were really looking at 
were they analogs of DHA? Is that what some they were? Yeah, a lot of them looked like yeah analogs of DHA. You know, different types of resolvins and mericins and different sort of natural compounds that show up in that pathway. Right. All right. Well, let's move on. What else was cool? There was uh, if there was a theme. Uh, I just tweeted about this this morning, but I think there's really like a chronobiology in genes kind of thing. Um, so originally they thought that your internal clock was really hypothalamic, right? The super chiasmatic nucleus of your brain or, or whatnot. And now they're saying that there's 20 or some odd genes that handle daily rhythms in your body and they're, they're in your pancreas, your liver, um, adipose tissue, she was saying this morning. Um, I don't know. What do you think about that? And that there's this communication that, that goes on and there's a bit of a sinking that goes along with all of these different cells and tissues of the body that when they become dysregulated, that's what leads to all these different metabolic syndromes that we see. It was intriguing. Um, it definitely is a bit different than, than the traditional view, as, as they stated, from you know that one central location controlling it to each of these different tissues. Right. Um, I thought it was compelling, at least. Well, it, and it was cool, too. I'm used to looking at that in a hormonal way. You know, yeah. like you're watching endocrine cycles, right. and to think that it's going on in every cell on a genetic level, that's yeah. kind of amazing, and you just can't ignore it. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, that would kind of make sense if you think about it, how important timing is for all sorts of stuff in your body, that you're probably going to have sort of a redundant-type system that's going to function then, too. So that you see that a lot in different physiology systems. Usually the higher it is in terms of importance, the more sort of quote-unquote backup systems you have. So from that standpoint, it makes sense that the cells themselves are going to be involved in timing effects. Uh, This morning, at least, uh, now this wasn't the talk that we all saw the other night, but uh, they were talking about it again, and there was um, Aguilera et al. from the University of Granada. Um, She started off, you know, she was doing a lot of, I don't know, but presentations about gene chips and trying to, you know, scan for all these genes or whatnot, but... uh, she was saying that they're frustrated because of all the genes that they've got nailed down as far as uh, obesity, for example, and this is straying a little bit from the chrono stuff, but she said they only explain a few percent of somebody getting obesity. Uh, and then she knows, she was saying, we know, of course, that people, it's, there's like a 70% uh, chance just if you just look at like family history and stuff, like with obese parents and, and that sort of thing. And the, the number of genes that they're able to identify doesn't match up. And she was just basically saying they're frustrated, you know what I mean? Because like where are the genes? They're, they're continuing to look for these genes. But it's probably a good lesson that some of these things are not single gene disorders, you know what I mean? They're just, there's so many genes involved that it's, you know, it's hard to even just use a blueprint and, as causal, you know. Looking at those gene chips, too, I mean, they've, they've been around for a while, but I, I still think we're in the very early stages of being able to massively look at all of these different genes, figuring out how they interact with each other, um, forming pathways, and then seeing how actually they relate to what we see at a whole body level. Uh, I don't think researchers necessarily do a real good job sometimes of pulling that all together. So it kind of looks sexy to talk about all these different genes and there's thousands of genes or hundreds of genes that change. But being able to pull that into sort of what we all want to to think about and that is, you know, what kind of outcome or how we react to certain situations we're still very far off from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, know, you just think of all the complex interactions very between complex. those. It's just exponential. Yeah. You know, just if you have a handful of genes, much less the hundreds to thousands of ones that they're looking at, 
you just get sort of a snapshot, and then maybe it's this one plus this one minus that one, you know, and that's only looking at three, you can end up with all different sort of permutations mm-hmm. from that too. Right. The more I attend this, these sorts of things, the more I think about, you know, we have a blueprint in it. In a way, it doesn't matter much, you know, because they're not just talking about genomics, but transcriptomics, you know, yeah. and what are the proteomics and everything. Like you're right. saying, what what products, what pathways are coming out of this stuff, you know. It's funny because in, when I was a kid, like bodybuilders would talk about genetics just being, I don't know, for shape maybe or size. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, there's so much to that. Every protein in your body is is based on, you know, your genetics. But Yeah, and you look at epigenetics, which sort of functions on top of, your genetics and the changes that can occur in that, you know, real fast. And even back to the the chronobiology one, they were talking about uh, some of the clock genes. They said that there's actually daily uh, remodeling of histone function is one of the theories about how it's actually exerting its effect, which I don't think we think of a lot of that kind of stuff happening in, in structural small changes on a day-by-day basis. Mm-hmm. You know, like little switches on, on your genes. Right, yeah. right. So I thought that was actually pretty interesting. Yeah, in fact, some of the things they were talking about, they're, they're taking fat samples out of people's, you know, bellies or rear end or whatever, and they're looking how your genes change, the expression of those genes will change with um, a crash weight loss diet, and then they extend out crash weight loss diets into more extended, more mild diets, and then in transition phase, and they were saying different genes get turned on and off in this process, different inflammatory kinds of things, and women differ from men. I mean, it's just, um, but one thing he said that was not new, I think, to me was that he was talking about with all these genetic changes that happen after you start to lose body fat over a period of calorie deprivation was you still end up with pre-adipocytes, baby fat cells waking up and being very eager to restore, uh, you know, everything that you just lost in, right. in a sense. So I'm not even sure in that case. I mean, it might be, it be neat to say, oh, look, I'm less inflamed at the end of this or that diet period or recovery period or whatever. But, you know, if if you're waking up immature fat cells and now they're in storage mode, you're still screwed, right? right? So <laughs> I, I'm not sure you're less inflamed but still screwed. I <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it really kind of makes you think about, I, I remember some old work from like uh, Catch and McArdle, they were talking about yo-yo dieting and how over time, I, I guess the, the trendy term is metabolic damage, if, the, if I know it's not exactly the yeah. same thing, but it seems like you, you know, once you are heavy, I mean, they were showing women who started heavy, and uh, aside from the fact that it was just um, emotionally taxing, and again, they I think they used mostly women in the beginning, but... Um, it was pretty dismal, like the the outcome. Like if you're heavy, you can lose it for a while, and it will come back, and then you'll lose it for a while, and it'll come back. Any time it comes back, it comes back worse. And a lot of this stuff explains why, right? I mean, if you're waking up pre-adipocytes, you know, then you're setting yourself up for right for, for regain. Yeah, yeah <laughs> regain. What I thought was interesting about that study too is that they showed that initially they looked at a number of genes and that when you were on a lower calorie diet, those gene activity actually got less. So the genes actually got more quiet as you were losing weight. And then when you switch to more of a maintenance type phase, exactly what you're saying, Lonnie, that at the end of the diet, the fat cells were more programmed to actually store fat, which you could argue is maybe that's more of a, you know, hormesis or effect that you're losing weight and you're kind of trying to come back to, you know, homeostasis again. So I thought that was interesting because you you would initially think that it's this nice little linear response and you actually have two different data points that are actually different from each other too so 
Yeah. And, you know, and I, I know listeners are always after something like, well, what's the practical, what right. the take-home message? And the problem is this is super complicated, yeah. right? I mean, it's not, there's not a simple answer like, here, let me insert this gene and everything's fixed, although there was a little bit of that going on. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. Can um, I uh, actually tie that in a oh, yeah. bit? Oh, yeah. um, there was a big push in this conference, and I saw it was actually going to be a topic in, in four years at the next one, and that's what they're terming personalized nutrition. And the talk I went to, it was really interesting. You know, we're talking about genetics in, in a way of figuring out why this happens or why that happens. Uh, but genetic testing is becoming much more affordable. And we still don't know how it all fits in together, but, you know, we're starting to collect information. And, and the groups that presented in the personalized nutrition were talking about uh, the website that they have. They have a website where they're incorporating three different uh, areas to create a personalized nutrition plan for the people that enroll in it. And that is the typical um, dietary food log. So we're looking at it from a nutrition um, dietary standpoint. And then they have their users do genetic testing. Um, and how, how did they do that? That's salivary. Okay. Um, so mm. they send a kit to the individual. They get a, uh, a little saliva sample and they send it through the mail. And then they also do uh, what they were calling phenotypic testing. So they um, take a small blood sample and they let it dry. They also send that through the mail, and they can get some typical information that you normally get from a blood test, like glucose, cholesterol, some enzymes. And they take all three of those different areas, and they try to create a personalized nutrition plan for these people. And not only are they able to do that, but they're also able to de-identify the folks and use that as a way to research all of the information that they're gathering. So uh, it's a plan that um, I'll go ahead and throw the websites out there uh, if people are interested. But um, the, fir the first main one is food, F-O-O-D, the number four, me, M-E dot org. So it's food for me. Dot org and the four is a number, and that's the main website. And they also threw out there uh, a website for the genetic testing. If, if you're just interested in doing that um, on your own, and, and that one is 23andme.com, and that's the number 23. So 23andme.com for $99. I haven't looked too much into it, but for $99, apparently you get some genetic testing, um, some information on ancestry and all that, which, you know, if you like information, it can be pretty interesting. So what's your take? I mean, bottom line, legitimate, finally legitimate, or uh, uh, but, but limited, maybe? Yeah, that's exactly what their conclusion was. It's still overwhelming to do this on a large uh, basis to where we can affect lots of people. Um, it's overwhelming. But what they said is it looks promising, and with a little bit more adjusting on the business logistics of being able to do this, it might be a possibility. Possibility. And what they were really trying to do, I like how they were creating a cycle with this, is they're trying to provide nutritional advice for, for individuals that's going to lead to them creating appropriate action that will then create a, a, a sense of well-being that will lead them to accept more feedback, to allow them to continue this positive feedback loop. Oh, it's almost a behavioral thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah because most people aren't necessarily accepting to advice, or they try it for a short period of time, and they don't see positive results, and then they're done with it. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, they were talking about one in five people apparently have had some genetic testing done out of a, a, a sample of, I think it was about 1,500 people. Hmm. I thought that was actually pretty high. pretty high. You mean voluntarily or just because of the medical that establishment? That I'm not sure. That I'm not sure. Uh, but on top of that, they said when given um, advice based on uh, genetics, they found, uh, I think it was almost nearly 100% of people didn't 
make necessary changes in regards to that information, which I thought was quite interesting. So, you know, you have people that say, oh, you're genetically predisposed to being fat. Well, I'm going to be fat anyways. Why would I make any differences? Hmm. Kind of a thing. And I, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. You know, one of the things I, I just thought about when you were uh, saying that was they were bringing up some old data, even from the Framingham study. Yeah, they were. And I tweeted something about this earlier, but they were it's part of the reason some people are down on saturated fat. I mean, I, th I think some people are s almost so pro-sat fat, you know, that yeah. they're but they were saying that if you carry the gene, and maybe that explains it, right? So people who are like, oh, you know, oh, this genetic crap, but it's not crap. I mean, the blueprint ultimately has got to play a role mm -hmm. in that some people carry the gene and saturated fat will make them fat. They gain weight. They gain waist girth. It's not good at all. And then if you don't have that gene, you can eat all the saturated fat you want. And I've heard about that with blood lipid profiles before, but never like waist girth and body fatness. You know, so that's where I think some of those specialized diets can be huge because you're like, oh, I have this gene. Or if you don't, you know, why are you going to deny yourself, you know, like um, butter from grass-fed cows, you know, or <laughs> if you don't have to, if you absolutely don't have to, where carbohydrates would be your problem. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, and that was funny. You mentioned, too, on the, the genetic stuff regarding to blood lipids and stuff. And one of the graphs they showed, and I don't have the exact reference in front of me, maybe it was... Nature Reviews and Gen X 2006 possibly, but exactly that, they had three very different responses. So as you consumed more saturated fat, a certain percentage of people basically had no response, didn't affect their blood lipids at all. Um, other people had the opposite effect where as you consumed more saturated fat, you saw a direct linear increase in you know profile of uh, lipids in their blood. And the third group actually saw the direct opposite of that. Their blood lipids actually went down instead of up. So in essence, you've got a population based on you know, predetermined genetic type issue. And then in essence, you've got three completely different responses. One goes up, one goes down, and one doesn't have any effect. You know, so it's pretty fascinating to see that where you've got such amazing differences you know, just based on that alone. And you know, when, I, when I hear that sort of thing... Uh, that the talk the other night it wasn't what i saw this morning but the guy said so we split up into these populations right. you know because a gene maybe 30 percent of the population could carry it or this or that but i can't help but think how it's going to change the way we do research like it's yep. almost infantile to say yep. this study's in boys or this study's in girls um when there's like the, even just the caffeine work that we've been doing mm -hmm. there's there's different you know snips or these you know uh, small genetic changes and some people metabolize it quickly some metabolize it slowly and then how do you know unless you're part of the study, right? And because we present data as a group average, and that's just a train wreck if you've got, you know, such a hodgepodge of genetic variants. So instead of boys and girls or young versus old or fit versus sedentary, you're going to have to say, you know, these are weightlifters with this or that blueprint, right? right? And yeah. then compare it to this other blueprint, and it just becomes so individualized, you know yeah. what I mean? And uh, I don't know, it almost makes me feel like what I'm doing is... Um, Thing, everything comes out in the wash, you know what I mean? Because, of course, some people are responders and some are not. And if we just knew their – at least the things that a major handful of genes drives. I mean, stuff like obesity or diabetes, there's, that's such a tangled mess, to be honest. I, mm -hmm. I, I don't know how you could just have a very specific separate populations and say, you know, does this supplement or drug work for this group and not, not this group? But some of these things, like uh, that saturated fat gene, it seems pretty straightforward. Yeah, it does. You know, I mean – Clearly, you'd put somebody like that on a low-carb, higher-fat diet if they wanted to get lean. Yeah, and then also, like what you said about averages, I personally have this 
I would say, vendetta against averages. But I think a lot of stuff, like you exactly said, it just disappears, right? So if you've got people with no effect, you've got people with extreme high effect like increasing, and now let's say you've got the same percentage or amount of people showing a decrease of about the same thing. Right. If you plot that on a graph, you're easily going to see these three different patterns and be like, what the hell is that? But if you only do the average, literally all that data disappears in the average, and it could very well come out that, well, there was no effect in the total study. But yet you've got individuals in there that had this massive response, positive, massive response, negative too. And a lot of that, I think, gets you know, just sort of lost and diluted in Gaussian averages so they can run all their nice stats yeah. and all that stuff. I remember reading old physiology journals where they wouldn't just do a single bar graph. You know, here's right. the group average for body weight, let's say, and here's the body weight of the other group. But they would show all 20 people and the little yep. lines going up or down, pre to yeah, post. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's sort of a yes. way to get around what you're saying I've there. I've seen some of that yeah. coming back, actually, in the journals. It's getting yeah. much better uh -huh. now. That yeah. You're some of reviewing them are, stuff. I have seen some, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some are actually requiring you to report all the yeah. data as raw data in part of the study mm -hmm. in some way, which I think is much more useful because then you can look at it you know, because a lot of times you're, you're not privy to what the actual data was. You can see what their analysis mm -hmm. was and what their average is. But maybe there's something in there that, you know, the researcher didn't notice or didn't see and that type of thing. It's so. always the risk of trying to summarize as you lose information. Right. You know, the people who want to dig deeper. It's like iPhone yeah. versus Android. You know, the people, <laughs> people who want to dig deep, you know, they want to see, like, individual data points right. pre to post. You know, the Android people, <laughs> they want more options, more advanced. I don't know. And one last quick thing on that, too, that I thought was interesting is that the kernel biology thing is they're talking about a group that had slept eight hours and then a group that had slept only four hours. And what was in so interesting is that they gave them, uh, I think it was an oral or an IV glucose tolerance test. And if you compared the two groups initially, when you looked at the graph, you would see that, you know, glucose and insulin matched pretty well. So at first glance, you would think, oh, well, you know, short sleep doesn't have that much of an effect. But when you look at the numbers on it, what you see is in the group that had a very short sleep, their body had to put out a lot more insulin in order to get a normalized effect. So if you're looking at just the end effect, real quickly you would say, well, well, it doesn't matter, right? They both had a normal response. Insulin and glucose are well matched. But in the short group uh, sleep, their body had to put out a lot more insulin in order to get back to that normalized uh, response. Mm -hmm. So their, the result was that the insulin resistance, or how much insulin you need to overcome the resistance at the tissue level during low sleep was actually much higher. You know, I think, like some of our listeners might be familiar, but bodybuilders in particular, and maybe the powerlifting guys too, I think we're acutely aware that insulin's a Jekyll and Hyde hormone, right? right? So, like insulin good muscle building or preservation but then too much insulin like you're saying is fat. that's just a train wreck for <laughs> yeah. body fat yep. right yep. and like I, something you've said that i've come to the same conclusion mike which is insulin with all these other systems and pathways and i've had written articles about all the different pathways for fat loss and gain they all seem interconnected back with insulin yep. as almost the yep. main regulator yep. You know, I mean, what other hormone can you change that much? I mean, you can bump your testosterone levels up 10%, maybe 15% on a good day. But insulin, you'll go from single digits in the morning to right. 100, you yeah. know, on a scale. So, yeah. And it's directly controllable by primarily nutrition, too. Yeah. Right, right, yeah. So that you're back to, okay, you know, leptin may be able to be tweaked a little bit, you know, other hormones, GH, eh. But, you know, we know that insulin is the counter-regulatory hormones. You can just go down the list. There's like seven, eight of them that do the opposite effect insulin does, 
So that tells you that insulin is probably pretty important. Pretty powerful. Yeah. And the fact that you said that it, it can be changed by nutrition by, you know, huge uh, strides, which then makes it more actionable, which makes it more of a useful for metabolic leverage type stuff. And for listeners that are interested in doping, like why would people inject insulin? You know, go get Humulin R and inject it and that sort of thing. And part of the... I think the the reason that they would do that, and you know, maybe some of the listeners are like, "Oh, that's not why," but this is what some of what I've seen. Again, you know, this is sort of you know underground stuff, but is that you can get very high insulin levels without all of that blood sugar accompanying it, right, so right. it's not so fat synthetic. Yeah, yeah, and and uh, I've even uh, I knew a crazy guy once, God, many years ago, and his whole thing. I think he even wrote like a little ebook online about doping insulin and only eating protein, like not even having carbohydrates with it, which is just incredibly risky. You know what I mean? Like it's going to crash your blood sugar. He's like, oh, gluconeogenesis, your body will make enough sugar. Yeah, but that process is slow. Oh, just crazy. (laughs) Right. Crazy. Okay, everybody, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, uh, I'm going to fire some facts, and Mike's got all kinds of notes and graphs written down here. And Dr. Cotter has got his um, laptop open. Uh, I'm going to fire some facts, and we're going to talk about gene doping, actually. So we'll be back in just a minute. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry, and on behalf of Phil and Rob, I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, you can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, it's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So... Uh, whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website, and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media, and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, If you simply Google CRC Press and Protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for $69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the $99.95 uh, cover price. So that's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So thanks.
Okay, everybody, we're back. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, chronobiology and how time affects your genes, whether it's time throughout the single day or even across weeks, like on a low-cal diet and that sort of thing. Um, but let me share a couple of things from this morning. Um, the Guarale Center, I think, or Guaralet, uh, if that's how you say it, um, there was a researcher there, and she was presenting some really fascinating stuff on chronobiology. Um, again, the whole idea of the timing of your biology, right? The ups and downs of hormones and genes and whatnot throughout the day. Or, and she said that started when people noticed how flowers would open exactly at 4 p.m. Hmm. And there must be a biological thing. It was just kind of neat to see the history of that. You know, like we were talking like with you with, in, with uh, even engineering. And oh, yeah. You, you don't always – you, you want to know how they came to this – you right, know, right. idea, and just watching flowers open, because hmm. obviously there's some kind of chemical concert going on to make that happen. But here's some interesting facts. One, and again, listeners, you could disagree if you want, but remember, not everybody that we saw present were exercise physiologists. They're nutritionists, and some of the ways they measure things you could probably find fault with, arguably, but they're also doing large numbers of people, and you have to simplify some of this stuff. But one of the things that she said twice, both in her talk and then later when she was asked, was that muscle strength peaks at 5 p.m. Hmm. Um, again, I don't think she was an exercise physiologist, but I found that interesting, and uh, presumably because of either genetic or hormonal ups and downs th throughout the day. Um, but muscle strength peaks at 5. She talked about how um, these 20 clock genes that are in your heart and your pancreas and your liver and adipose tissue and everything, some speed up metabolic rate, some slow down uh, metabolic rate, so you can think of like good hmm. or bad for fat loss. Um, but one of the things that she was kind of making the point, and she was showing graphs of people that have um, quote-unquote bad genetic profiles versus people who have the lucky gene, and she was showing that throughout the course of the day, imagine like an S-curve, as, as hormones and genes and enzymes go up and down, a lot of swing is actually what you want. You want your body to be in this big natural rhythm because she said when it flattens out and you don't have much of a, a you know high in the morning and low in the afternoon or what have you that that's related to obesity cancer diabetes and she just went down this huge list hmm. so being flat all the time or like dysregulated which is what we are you know which is why we probably sound like it at the end of five days <laughs> uh, be, being out of our time zone um but, you know, the whole idea that things flatten out is bad, that you want swing. And, it, you know, there's a light-dark cycle on Earth. People evolved in that. So mm -hmm. it, it does make sense. It's coming down to being flexible, I think, which we talk a lot about, yeah. right? I think it, flexibility. Yeah. yeah. There you go. In there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she said, for example, some of the things that would swing up and down, leptin uh, apparently is the highest at 2 a.m., um, Best insulin sensitivity about 10 a.m., and I've actually written on that before. I think that's a combination of both tissue receptiveness to insulin, but it's also more secretion. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, in the past I've suggested having selecting carbs in the morning, partly just for practical reasons so you can lift, but get the glycogen into the muscle, right? S something like 70% of the carbohydrates you eat should end up as in muscles as glycogen and not overspill into fat tissue and whatnot. But even when I wrote some of that stuff years ago on um, – temporal nutrition or whatever, I, I actually did a Q&A, and I, 
almost just kind of covered my ass to be honest about some of that. Like, how much do we know? Well, we don't. You know, yeah. this a lot of this is a guess. And, and and a lot of what this lady was saying, she was actually asked, so what should I eat in the morning versus in the evening? And she was kind of saying the same thing. You know, we're, we're looking at that. This is going to take time because there's different genetic profiles in people, you know, and you can't just make blanket recommendations about, you know, everybody eat carbs in the morning or, or this or that. But she was saying that, it really seemed, and again, this data goes back and forth. I know, Mike, you've said this, but mm-hmm. she said, um, and she was showing some data that eating after 3 p.m. is clearly associated with more waste fat. Again, just with simple waste girth and that sort of thing. Now, does that apply to a lifter? Maybe, maybe not. You know what I mean? So you, we're sometimes extrapolating from a general population. But she said dinner in the United States, especially when we eat it later, is a huge target for weight management, hmm. you know, because of... That's not a good time to be, you know, chowing down, yeah. and especially if your insulin sensitivity sucks and all that sort of thing. And I know there's some kind of um, uh, lay diets that are out there, and, and you can cherry pick references to support these yeah. things too. Um, and again, we don't know. I think anybody who's not admitting that this is speculation, you have to be cautious with. Maybe there's something to sell you there, but it looks like eating loaves of bread and pasta and huge meals is exactly what Americans do. And, it's, and what she's saying may not be wise. But by the same token, I don't think you'd want to be hammering fat late at night either just because right. of the calorie content. So, Speaking um, of where we're at, the Spanish culture here, I, we've noticed that everyone eats yeah, very, very late. late here. I mean, dinner is at 9, 10, some people even at 11 o'clock. I, it, would just, it would be interesting to look at the differences between countries because I know we eat much earlier. You know, it still might be considered late in regards to this kind of data, um, but it still would be very interesting. And based off the, I wasn't in this talk, and I think the readers or the listeners should be interested in it as well. What kind of research or data was she looking at to come to these conclusions? Um, she was. They were doing um, blood draws across across the course of the day. Um, she was, uh, I think it was this talk or, or in this session, she had um, women that were involved in the study wearing um, temperature-sensitive watches to kind of estimate their mm-hmm. metabolic rate. Like, you know, you could see at night they were cooler, yeah, and then as right. they moved around they got warmer. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas we might do something more complicated like VO2, you know, she's just got little yeah, temperature that's, gauges. That's one does, actually. Oh, yeah? yeah. I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, like insulin sensitivity data, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, if I look at my notes here, basically she was saying a, an unfavorable enzyme profile, uh, adiponectin, um, insulin, you know, all these sorts of things pointing at this circadian swing, you know. Uh, but it's interesting what you said, Josh, too, is it's not just when, but what. You know, the Mediterranean diet is supposed to increase lifespan and insulin sensitivity and everything else. And they're, you know, obviously big fans of olive oil. I mean, how many olive yep. groves did we see, yep. you know, as opposed to what we're eating, which is corn oil and, you know, or, I don't know, low-quality greasy meats, you know, and that sort of thing. Now, interestingly here, a lot of prosciutto, they like their there pork. That. Yeah. They really like their I mean, hamon. A lot of alcohol big. here, too. I mean, you know, we were I out won. there. I mean, you get a free little appetizer, a tapas with a yeah. drink. You know, everyone was drinking. So red wine late in the evening. Portions um, smaller. Smaller portions. Yes. A lot of seafood as well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was very interesting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they enjoy their food, too. They I think really that's the do. huge difference. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they sit down. Like, I kept, I kept yeah. trying to get a coffee to go, and it's almost impossible. <laughs> you know, Pato yeah. Yavar, please give it to me to go, because right. we're used to walking around with giant buckets of coffee. At least I am. Yeah. 
and you know they want they actually sat me down every time. No, <laughs> Senor, sit. <laughs> you know. <laughs> How and, big was your coffee, Lonnie? Well, the cafe solo. I'm understanding, and you guys can espresso. correct me, listener, but it looks like a espresso. It is espresso. Okay. Yeah. And it's these tiny little cups, you know what I mean? So every time I'd say solo, you know, don't give me milk in it. It's just such a tiny little yeah. thing. Even the know? standard ones are just like, what, like two shot glasses? I yep. mean, you don't see like 24-ounce coffees. I mean, I don't think we saw anything bigger than, what, probably four ounces yeah, maybe for a small. standard coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, while we're on the cultural thing, too, there's the, the Arab history through here. And we went to a tea house. And, I mean, everything just seems more real. That just supported the same thing we we're just talking about. Like, if you're sitting down and you're snacking on olives and meat, you know, that's so different than the way Americans just plow down GMO chips, you right. know, like, <laughs> mindlessly, you know, and yeah. wipe out the whole bag. And the same thing with the tea. We went to this um, Arab, um, you know, tea house kind of thing. And, I mean, they bring out these scalding uh, individual pitchers. And they, there's... You open it up, and there's just leaves and flower petals, and all this stuff mm. is just thrown in there. It's just all so real. It makes you feel like living in a, in the states. It's, it's just everything's plastic and yeah. bogus and processed. You know, it's even the sugar. How often have we even seen on a table like anything that's not natural yeah. sugar? Very rare. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. The, the containers of sugar are actually pretty small. Yeah, I mean they're not huge, and they only give you one most of the time. Or like in America, you sit down. It's like you could have five packets of sugar if you want. You could pick two. You know, artificial sweeteners if you wanted to. And here it's just like one little real sugar packet, and that's, that's all you need. You know, Chris Shugart will talk sometimes on T Nation about breaking habits. And in fact, there are some diets here that's not unlike what he does with that velocity diet thing. But um, I just think moving here for a while would break mm-hmm. you. It would teach you to appreciate the taste of food. You know, hey, yeah. that the olives taste good. Prosciutto is freaking delicious, right. you know. And then the vegetables and everything that goes with it. And the, like you said, the wine. Yep. And not feel bad about it. You know, you're not right. chugging some cheesy 64-calorie light beer. You're right. actually enjoying it. But then you're getting all these phytochemicals. And you, you went to a talk on phenols and whatnot, didn't you? Yeah, Was we did, one? yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything on that before I talk about the gene doping? Um, the main thing I got out of it was that they were testing wine uh, from polyphenol content and also looking at with and without alcohol. Um, it appeared that if you did not uh, have alcohol, that it may be beneficial for triglyceride levels. Um, but if you had the alcohol included, it was better for HDL. So if we know that, quote-unquote, good cholesterol, that's one of the main things you could modify that or increase it is by moderate alcohol consumption. Mm-hmm. Another thing that was interesting is they talked about uh, red wine may help with uh, polyphenol, uh, moderate, moderates the uh, adhesion molecules, so how well the blood cells kind of stick to each other and they also said that red wine appears to have beneficial effects on gut uh, health they said possibly through uh, prebiotic effects so maybe some interaction with you know the little friendly bacteria in our gut and it appears to be beneficial for that i didn't see any specific talks on pre or probiotics the microbiome yeah Yeah, but but they did mention it yes in fact they mentioned it like it was duh you yeah, know, yeah. like what, the one slide we saw, 90%. yeah, 90% yeah. of the human se- uh, human body is not even yours. It's, right. It's, it's yeah. bacteria. bacteria. Fungus. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Yep. 
I don't know if you caught why, but I, you know, I think they were checking the uh, polyphenol content in the wine, and right. they said it varied like from three to twelve percent. Yeah, it was and, a huge variation. It was the same wine. I think they were using right it wasn't i think they're using different types because they had three they? bottles that they had put up on the mm. slides but i okay. couldn't quite grasp which ones they were i couldn't either but all red right yeah i believe so I think right so i think one might have been a rosé but they mm. were yeah the other two yeah. were reds mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. all right we'll start to wrap, wrap this up here because we're getting run out of here a little bit by people cleaning up after the meeting <laughs> uh the last thing that i saw just this morning and you know talk about dysregulated chronobiology, you know, everybody's crushed by now, but um, there was a guy from uh, a Texas Biomedical Institute. Uh, he was a Mexican gentleman, and um, not only have they looked at families, Mexican families, with a specific gene pool since 91, but then he, he started talking about his work with baboons and actually taking genes and, you know, injecting them essentially into people. They'll inject carriers into your blood and then they'll use ultrasound in very specific spots against a muscle or against a fat pad, and the ultrasound breaks up the the carrier hmm. of whatever gene they're trying to get in. And he was showing with like cell staining and some and all these sorts of things from biopsies that you can clearly see the cells lighting up. That you know the gene did get into the DNA, the gene that he injected, and that sort of thing. And he was making some wild claims, and people might have heard about this before. And I mean. Once this gets to the human level, anything that bodybuilders or powerlifters have done in the past with something as crude as testosterone <laughs> is just going to go out the window, you know, because yeah. it's site-specific. There's no – you wouldn't have stuff like prostate problems, side effects, or hair loss or whatever, you know, the kinds of things, uh, acne, because you're literally just inserting a gene that says make actin and myosin, you know. And he that's what he showed in muscle tissue. He was saying well, – here's his quote, um, uh, melting fat directly – um, by basically injecting into the bloodstream of these, it was baboons, um, uncoupling protein 1, UCP1. Mm-hmm. And the, he said the, the adipose tissue just became fat-burning tissue mostly because it was all uncoupled, right? So there's all this heat production. It's just eating itself up, essentially. And then, like, he, he also did it with, um, with skeletal muscle and got it to actually incorporate the right gene and start to <laughs> express actin and myosin. And I mean, so that, how long did that? How long does it stay activated once activated by ultrasound? Is it an on-off? So once ultrasound is turned off, it's off. I, or? I think it's it, what it, the ultrasound does is it disrupts the little tiny right. um, mm-hmm. spheres, if you will, and yeah. then it, that releases the gene, you know, or so um, the local delivery mechanism is that's how it works. Then yeah, mm-hmm. that's how you get it to. You could probably do a system-wide injection, right, and then right. ultrasound whatever areas you want to sort of drive that into it sounds like because i know there are i don't know the specifics but um animals where you can shine light of some sort and that can turn on and off Mm -hmm. genes uh kind of like an on off switch light Mm -hmm. on the genes are on light off the genes are off Mm -hmm. which is uh, very Mm -hmm. interesting Mm -hmm. yeah i've seen that with certain uh like neural pathways that's what i've seen it with yeah yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so and ultimately you wonder how long would that last, but I think you would want it to be temporary, you know, yes. like get bigger deltoids or biceps or whatever. Nobody would have a weak, weak point, really. They're, the shape might be a little odd, but, no, you know, you wouldn't see guys with, you know, stick calves and stuff on stage. And, but you wouldn't want to be like that. I mean, who right. even the guys at the top bodybuilders, I can't imagine that they would, well, maybe some of them would, but would want to weigh 280 shredded when they're... 70 years old you know what i mean it's it's um or beyond and i'm not saying that older guys shouldn't bodybuild i'm just saying that's that's a lot of demand on your body you know so it would be kind of cool if it 
if you could have things come and go. But in a way, it makes me sad because then the quest for size is just over. You yeah. know, so people can say, oh, there's science they don't know, and first they say this, and then they say that. And I get that a little bit out of Rob sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, and, and some of our guests, but that's where it's leading people. I mean, you know. I mean, it's really, it's really cool, you know, uh, when we think about, you know, the comic book stuff. But, boy, it's scary, too, if the technology increases at a level that allows us to do this before we have a full understanding of all the implications for having one gene or hundreds of genes on that aren't normally on all the time. Uh, you know, just even thinking of skeletal muscle as um, a hormone gland, you know, the myokines. You have all, you mm-hmm. know, something where the genes are turned on all the time. How's that going to affect all the other local tissues and systemic tissues, you know, with um, these genes on? It, it could be some very weird implications if someone decides to just jump right in and try it out. Well, know? yeah, I mean, if they can insert whatever genes. <laughs> I mean, I've seen them insert the luciferase genes and, make, yeah. you know, make yeah. mice yeah. glow, That's right. you know, um, cool. yeah. firefly butt gene. <laughs> <laughs> or... Um, uh, yeah, I, I've seen them uh, get skeletal muscle tissue to secrete its own growth hormone, you know, and mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. And, I mean, you're right. I mean, what kind of you, – you could be well-meaning, like, oh, we're, let's put the chlorophyll gene in people's skin and we'll walk around green, but we'll make our own carbohydrates. We'll, we'll end starvation. But then you could become hideously diabetic and die within moments because mm-hmm. your sugar yeah. – your blood sugar is like maple syrup, <laughs> <laughs> you know. But, Even that from uh, just – judging or a competitive standpoint like how would anyone if they all had let's say access to it you know maybe you can alter bone maybe you can alter other structures too how would anyone really look any different from the next person you and know, you know i mean why they'd all look even more the same than what they look now yeah you're right there's already the, a lot of uniformity everything yeah. everybody's yep. so huge that a lot of the character of it's gone um and the same thing would be true with other sports uh, sure. power, power, not just powerlifting, but i mean think almost anything basketball or baseball i mean there's more performance to that you know what i mean but still everybody's so in, g- genetically superior by definition you know that it almost becomes a game of chance right. <laughs> you yeah. know anyway hmm. okay everybody well i, I that's going to be it we're getting chased out of here a little bit so uh, uh thanks for listening do you guys have any closing thoughts before i no i think overall it's been a very good good conference and very cool to come all the way over here to to Spain to see just, you know, I notice a lot of the presenters are from, you know, countries that I would normally never see, you know, info presented from in the U.S. either. So to see different perspectives from uh, different areas has actually been very, very cool. Yep. It's very encouraging to see countries from around the world, yeah. you know, all doing their own research. And humbling. I mean, I, I'm oh, yeah. you know, I'm here exactly. through the ASN, the American Society of Nutrition. And I mean, just to be a member, you have to have two publications and be a PhD, to, at least at a certain membership level. And and so when you hear there's 4,000 people here, I mean, that's quite a few. Yeah. It might not be as many as some meetings, but, you know, there's a really high level. And just to, to close with, I mean, the opening talk when we came here um, was one of the directors of the World Health Organization, as some listeners might know about who. And she's essentially responsible for coordinating the health goals for planet Earth yeah. for the next 20 <laughs> years. I mean, that is humbling Lofty stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That is humbling <laughs> stuff to see you know, people from the United Nations and, yeah. and WHO and stuff. Wow. Big time stuff. Okay, everybody. Um, that'll be it this time. Sort of a special episode. And uh, we'll be back on track uh, next week uh, with our usual stuff. Bye-bye. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like Iron Radio, if you like what we do, uh, the education, interviewing uh, industry personalities, or many of the pro bodybuilders or coaches that we've had in the past, 
uh, please just click on the donate button at www.ironradio.org and make a donation. We've had some great donations from people that have kept us going. Thank you so much. Uh, so please visit uh, the website, click on the donation button, or if you like, uh, and it's a similar situation, buy some Iron Radio cool stuff. We've got t-shirts and mugs and things like that, and those things help support the site and keep us on the air. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.